Last week, we talked about the faithfulness of God in the face of almost infinite human sinfulness. That if we look around our lives and around this world, that human faithlessness, human sinfulness is absolutely rampant. But God chooses to respond to our sinfulness with faithfulness, meaning that he deals with our sin. He also overwhelms our sin with grace and kindness, and he fulfills every promise he's ever made to bless us. But the question is, How does God demonstrate his faithfulness in the face of our sin? This morning, we have a passage that some believe to be the most theologically important passage in the whole Bible. And we have the opportunity to look at this passage and understand in depth God's faithfulness to us in the face of our sin. And in the passage that we have to look at this morning, as I tried to think, what's the best way to try to teach and communicate this information? There are two things we're going to try to do today. The first is, when we get to the time, we are going to look at four words. And we're gonna use a chart to kind of help us work through those to try to understand how they work in connection with one another and what they mean. We also have a story, a parable of sorts, that I wrote to try to help explain how these four amazing theological pictures fit together. So please take your Bible and turn to the book of Romans chapter 3. The book of Romans chapter 3. If you're using one of the church Bibles, that's page 913. Romans chapter 3, and we begin in verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ To all who believe, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now stop here for just a moment. We haven't got to the really theologically rich section yet. We haven't gotten to the part where we're going to find four words that really help us to see and to understand what God has done for us. This is the introduction And what the introduction is saying is just what we talked about last week. Every single human being, Jew or Gentile, moral or immoral, good person, bad person, old, young, doesn't matter. Every single human being has sinned, disobeying God and falls short of what God wants from us or requires from us. God responds to our sinfulness by being faithful 
And that faithfulness has been written down in the scriptures before Jesus even came on this earth. God wrote down the plan for how he was going to deal with human sinfulness. That's the lead-in to what some think is the most theologically rich couple of verses in the entire Bible. That's what we're about to look at right now, verse 24. And are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus." The expression of God's faithfulness in response to human sin comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's faithfulness in response to our sin. And particularly, Paul is focused on the crucifixion of Jesus. Do you see that phrase, verse 25? through the shedding of his blood, that's referring to Jesus dying on the cross. Through Jesus' death on the cross, God has shown himself to be faithful in response to our sin. And here's where we get these four words, these four words that are this picture of what God has done for us. The four words that we're going to look at this morning are the words justified in verse 24, redemption also in verse 24, sacrifice of atonement, verse 25, and demonstrate or demonstration in verses 25 and 26. Now what we're going to do to try to understand these four words is we're going to fill out a little chart together. So in your notes, there's a chart that you're also going to see on the screen over here. And I want to especially encourage uh, those who are younger children that are here uh, to take some time with us and to fill out this chart uh, because we're going to do this together. We're going to look at each of these four words. I'm going to try to explain what the word means and try to illustrate how it works. And we want to understand these pictures together. All right, everybody got their charts? All right, our first word is the word justified. That's a legal term, meaning it comes out of the legal world. It has to do with a judge's verdict. It comes out of the world of law courts, judges, lawyers. It's a legal term. And what justified means is to declare righteous. It's a verdict. It's when a judge says not guilty. It's when a judge says you are declared to be innocent. Not just that you've done nothing wrong, 
but that you are considered to be right. You're considered to be innocent and right. Now, the opposite of the word justified is the word condemned or the word condemnation. And sometimes you can tell a word's meaning by looking at its opposite. And so for all four of these words, I'm going to give you the scriptural opposite of the word we're looking at. For justified, the opposite is condemned. And condemned means to be worthy of guilt and shame. Therefore, justified means that no accusation that might bring guilt or shame can stand against us. That God has declared us to be acquitted. God has declared us to be innocent of all charges against us that might bring guilt or shame. Now, what this might look like, and again, maybe this example uh, resonates more with those who are younger here. Imagine, uh, if you're a younger child here, that you and your sibling have been playing uh, your PlayStation together. And your brother, we'll say, accuses you of being selfish in regards to using the video game system. And so in the midst of the accusation and the argument, you and your brother go find mom. And mom says, well, let's hear both sides of the story. And so you say to your mom, but I let him go first. I've let him play longer, and I have barely gotten a chance at all myself. He won't let me play at all. Your mom listens to your brother's side of the story. When you're both done, mom says to you, you've done the right thing. You've been the good brother. You have behaved properly. That's justified. You've been declared to be in the right. You've been declared to be innocent. Your brother accused you of being selfish, but mom has said, no, I declare you to be in the right. That's what the word justified means. Now, when it's applied to us as Christians, what it means is that God looks at all our sin and declares us to be innocent of that sin. That God as judge looks at our sin and says, not guilty. Now how can that be? We are guilty for our sins. We are the ones who have lied. We are the ones who have been arrogant. We are the ones who have been greedy. How can God declare us to be not guilty of something that we have done? Well, for that, we have to look at the next word. So the next word we're going to look at is in verse 24, and it's the word redemption. Redemption. Now, if justified is a legal term, redemption is a financial term. It comes out of the financial world. And what the word redeemed means is bought or paid for or rescued. 
You're going to kind of hear that the word redeemed both has a financial sense, but it also has a freedom sense to it as well. The opposite of the word redeemed is to be in debt or to be enslaved. And we can kind of see the connection between slavery and debt if you think about the example of college tuition. Imagine that you took out great loans to be able to pay for your undergrad education. You are currently in debt. There is a sense in which you are not free because of that debt. You are enslaved to have to pay back that debt. You're not free to get whatever job you feel like getting. You have to get a job that will allow you to pay off those debts. You're not free to spend money any way you want. You've got to spend money in such a way that you can also pay off those debts. You're not perhaps free even to go back for more schooling because you first got to pay off the debt from your previous schooling. All of that idea is to illustrate the fact that being in debt brings about a level of entrapment, a level of being enslaved. Now imagine that someone comes along and pays off all your college debt. Wouldn't that be great? There is a sense in which you have been redeemed from that. You have been bought out of that. You have been set free from those things. And so when we apply this to us, what God is saying to us in Romans is that our sins had incurred a debt that we could not pay. But God in his mercy purchased us out of slavery to sin because Jesus paid the price for our sins. That's what the word redeemed means. Jesus redeemed us, which means he paid for our sins. All right, does that make sense? Now, how can Jesus do that? Well, we've got to look at the third word. The third word, which is in verse 25, is the word atonement. This is perhaps the heart of everything we're going to talk about today, it perhaps is the heart of the entire epistle of Romans, is this idea of atonement. Now, if the word justified is a legal term and the word redeemed or redemption is a financial term, the word atonement is a relational term. It comes out of the world of human relationships. We don't see this anymore because we don't really use the word atonement in common everyday English very much. But you can see this if I explain to you where the word atonement or atone came from. The English word atone came from the two English words at one. So atone, A-T-O-N-E, comes from at one. And it means to be at one with someone. 
that when you are united with someone, when you are reconciled to someone, when you are at peace with someone, when you are one with another person, you are at one with them. So if my wife is happy with me and I'm happy with her, if she's pleased with how I'm behaving and I'm pleased with how she's behaving, we are at one with each other. So the word atone is a relational word. It means there's nothing between me and the other person. But that's not what the word means. It's a relational word, but in order to understand what the word atone means... We have to go into the Hebrew Bible, into the Old Testament, because that's where the word atone comes from. And that when Paul talks about Jesus being a sacrifice of atonement, he's drawing on the fact that so important was this idea of atonement, that God created an entire sacrificial system for the Jewish people to follow, and in particular gave them their most holy day, a day called the Day of Atonement, which we today call Yom Kippur, to illustrate what this means. See, the problem is is that sin creates a rift in our relationship with God. We are no longer one, we are no longer at one with God because of sin. And the word atone means to wipe away that sin. It means to appease an angry God. It means to make amends for the things that we've done wrong. An illustration of this comes to us from 1 Samuel 6. In 1 Samuel 6, the Philistines have defeated the children of Israel and they've captured the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's presence. The Philistines do not treat the Ark of the Covenant the way it ought to be treated. In their arrogance, they blaspheme against God and this physical representation of his presence. As a result, God begins to strike the Philistines with terrible plagues and tumors. The Ark of the Covenant is moved from one city to the next as each Philistine city tries to avoid the punishment from God. Finally, they realize, look, we got to get rid of this thing. This thing is causing us undue problem, and so they want to send it back to the children of Israel. The priests of the Philistines say, hey, hold on. You can't just ship this thing back. We got to do something to make amends for the fact that we've treated it so poorly. And so what they advise is, is they include an offering to go along with the Ark of the Covenant so that it might go back to the children of Israel. That's the Philistine saying to God, look, we're sorry. We are sorry for the way that we have disgraced your name. We want to make amends. That's the idea of atonement. It's the idea that we've made amends. We've appeased uh, the anger that has come because of our sin. The opposite, then, of atonement is to make unclean or to separate or to divide or to make angry. What this means for us is that in Jesus, Jesus Christ's death on the cross has made amends for our sins. 
that God is angry because of the sins that we have committed, but Jesus' obedience make amends for our disobedience. Jesus has appeased God's anger in the face of sin so that we can be one with God, so that everything between us and God can be right. Does that make sense? Fourth word is the word demonstrate or the word demonstration. It comes in verses 25 and 26. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Demonstrate is a public relations word. So if justified is legal, redeemed is financial, atoned is relational, demonstrate comes to us out of the world of public relations. And it means to show, to prove, to demonstrate in a public way. The opposite of the word demonstrate is to hide or keep secret. If you take something and keep it secret, you're hiding it from other people knowing. Demonstrate is the opposite of that. For example, if you think about the idea of a letter of recommendation or a reference, I'm often asked to fill out letters of recommendation or references uh, for people in the church who want to apply to graduate school uh, or who want to adopt a child or who want to join a ministry. And what the people at that Christian graduate school or that Christian adoption agency uh, or that Christian ministry are asking is, can you demonstrate faithfulness? And so they're asking someone like a pastor or someone else from the congregation, can you give us a letter of recommendation that demonstrates that this person is a faithful and trustworthy person? That's the idea here is that God in Jesus is demonstrating publicly for all to see his faithfulness. That the cross is God's very public statement that he is a God of love and of mercy, but who also takes sin seriously and deals with it accordingly. Four words that are at the heart of what God has done for us in Jesus. God has justified us through Jesus, declared us to be not guilty. God redeemed us from slavery to sin through Jesus. God made atonement for all our sins by the death of Jesus. And God has demonstrated his faithfulness through his actions in Jesus. Now there's our chart. For those of us who are linear thinkers, it's all laid out right there. It's hopefully helpful for us to be able to see what God has done in different pictures of those things. But I also tried this week to write a story to kind of help tie all of these elements together for the sort of narrative side of us to kind of hear what this might look like. 
Now, this turned out to be trickier than I thought it would be. So bear with me. What I've written for you is a parable. It's a parable of sorts, meaning it's not a true story. I made it up. And not everything in the story is absolutely perfect or explains all aspects of what God has done. But my hope and prayer is that this parable helps illustrate how these truths fit together. Now, I worked on the details of it, so I want to read it to you so that I get it right. So, imagine a court case that's made its way to a judge. A man owns a company, and he stands accused by his employees of paying poor wages. He's not providing them with enough money for health insurance, and the other benefits at the company are terrible. Public opinion is against him as rumors have spread throughout the city of Grand Rapids about what a terrible boss he is. So the people who work for him have been telling their friends, my job is miserable, I don't get paid enough, we get treated terribly at this job. And everybody in the city seems to know that this man uh, is not somebody you want to work for. But in addition to the public pressure, the employees have now sued the company and this person to try to right this wrong. Everyone's watching the court case to see how it will turn out. Now, the judge examines the facts of the case, and he sees that the employees have a grievance. They're right. They've not been treated the way they ought to be treated. He's concluded that the man is a selfish, arrogant jerk. The judge is furious that somebody who owns a company would treat his employees this way, but he also is a merciful person. He knows that the man who owns the company has no money to pay back the wages he should have been paying his employees because he's wasted it all on extravagant living. He also knows that the man was never taught any better and that he's the product of a system that's taught him to pursue money at all costs. And so the judge calls up his son, who's a wealthy entrepreneur in his own right. The judge says to his son, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to buy this man's company, make right what he's done wrong, and teach him how to be a loving and kind boss. And so the son purchases the company. When he purchases the company, he assumes all of the liabilities that the man's greed had created. He now becomes responsible for the lawsuit because he's bought the company assets and liabilities in total. The judge's son goes through the records calculates what would have been a generous salary for each employee, pays them back what they had been owed in back pay, plus interest, 
plus he reimburses them for all their out-of-pocket healthcare costs that they have accrued over the time they've worked at the company, plus he adds 20% to that total amount to make restitution for how poorly they've been treated and to communicate to them how valuable they are to the company. He personally delivers checks to each of the employees in that amount and apologizes for the way that they had been treated in the past. The former owner, whose company has now been bought, now works for the judge's son, and the judge's son begins to train him how to be kind and merciful. Now remember, there's still a lawsuit in court. The judge, however, now sees that his son is the one who is liable for the lawsuit, but all of the grievances have been paid in full. The employees are perfectly happy and have been treated in such a way that when the judge looks at the amount of money that each person has received, he realizes that he can now in good conscience declare the man innocent because damages have been paid. The people have been paid and are taken care of. The judge, after he pronounces the man innocent, because justice has been served, he then releases the story of what's happened to the press so that all can see how justice has been served and so that all can see how he and his son were faithful and generous in the situation. Now in the story, when the judge's son goes and pays all of the money back to the employees, that's atonement. He's making right what was wrong. The man who owned the company treated his employees poorly, but the judge's son has come in and made right what was wrong. That's atonement. When the judge's son offered to buy the company, that's redemption. He's purchasing the man and his company with all of the assets and all of the liabilities, that's redemption. When the judge, looking to see that the damages have been covered, that what was wrong has been made right, when he now pronounces the man innocent, that's justification. And when those details are released to the public to see, that's demonstration. That justice has been served and that people have been taken care of is demonstrated for all to see. Now in the parable, we're the owner of the company. God is the judge, and Jesus is the judge's son. We, through our sinful behavior, have wronged God and our neighbors. But God, in his mercy, 
sees that there's nothing we can do to make right the things that we've done wrong. And so he sends his son Jesus to buy us, to purchase our lives, to redeem us from our slavery to sin and to Satan and to death. Jesus does that by making atonement for our sins, by obeying where we disobey, by taking upon himself the punishment that our sins deserve, by making atonement for us, we are redeemed from Satan and sin and death. God, the merciful and faithful judge, is now free to declare us innocent, Not to ignore the fact that we sin, but our sins now belong to Jesus. He's assumed the liability for them. He's made amends for them. And a righteous and holy judge can now look at the facts of the case and declare us innocent. Because his son has taken care of all of it for us. He's made atonement. He's redeemed us. And now God, the merciful judge, is free to say, not guilty, innocent. You are righteous because of Jesus. God then, in the cross, demonstrates to you and I and the whole world that he is a loving and a just God. He dealt with sin through Jesus, but did so in a way where he was free to be merciful to us. And the cross stands as a public demonstration to you and I to know objectively that God loves us and for the whole world to know that this God that we serve is a just God and a merciful God and that he is willing to pay whatever price to be faithful to us in the midst of our sin. That's why Romans is going to go on and say, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, in that while we were treating the people around us terribly, in that while we cared nothing about God, God sent his son to die for us so he might make amends for our sins, so he might redeem us from the curse of sin and the law and Satan and death, so he might be free to declare us to be innocent. God did all of this while we were his enemies. And that is objective, definitive proof of how much God loves you and how much God loves me. This is the heart of the gospel. How can God be faithful in the midst of our sin? This. This is what he does. He justifies, he redeems, he atones, and he demonstrates publicly for all to see. Listen, God is not free simply to wave away sin. He is not free to ignore it. What he did was the right thing. He made amends for the sins. He purchased our sins so that they belong to Jesus. He then is free to declare us innocent and to demonstrate his love to all people. Now Paul says this truth is received by faith. What that means is, in our illustration, the owner of the company 
has to agree to the buyout from the judge's son. Nothing in the judge's plan will work unless the owner of the company agrees to the buyout. He's got to sell the company to the judge's son. Otherwise, the owner of the company remains liable for his own debts. Once he sells that company, the liabilities transfer from him to the judge's son. So here the point is this. All that God has done, all of his faithfulness, all the demonstration of his love, it all hinges on you or I being willing to sell to Jesus our lives. And that God has made everything possible. He has prepared all things so that every sin that you or I has ever, have ever committed can be atoned for by Jesus so that we can be rescued from sin and death so that when we stand before God on judgment day, he will declare us to be not guilty. All that needed to be done is done. Now you and I just simply have to accept the offer to buy out the company. And by faith, when you say yes to God, then you receive justification, redemption, atonement, and God's love is demonstrated to you. And the good news that Paul says is that this buyout offer has been made by God to every single human being here whether Jew or Gentile, whether old or young, whether rich or poor, whether generally good or generally bad, a merciful and loving judge is making the offer to you today. And the question is, will you accept it?